I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word, whether you have it in old school hardback form like me, or whether you have it on your phone or your tablet, and click or turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. You have a smartphone or a tablet, um, you've got it pretty easy. Just got to point and click a couple times to get to Luke chapter 10. If you have a Bible with you, hardback form, and you're unsure where Luke is, that's okay in the front of your Bible. They put it there for a reason. It's called a table of contents. There are two main headings in that table of contents. There's an Old Testament heading and a New Testament heading. If you'll look under the New Testament heading, you'll find Matthew, and then you'll find Mark, and then you'll find Luke. And I encourage you to turn there with me in Luke chapter 10. Also, I hope you have a message outline or a pen or a pencil, something to take notes with. You've got some blanks that you're going to need to fill in here in just a moment, as you'll see some things come up on the screen for you to fill in in those blanks that are there for you as well. Outside of all the stories that Jesus told, um, along with the prodigal son, this story that we're going to look at this morning is perhaps his most famous story. It's the story that I'm sure many of you in this room know very well. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And let me begin by saying that Jesus never told a story just to be telling a story. You have to read what's before the story and you have to read what's after the story if you really want to understand what's going on in the story. And that's true here in Luke chapter 10. So we're going to go back to verse 25 in Luke chapter 10. If you want to look there with me, you can in your own copy or the words will be on the screens in front of you. The word of God says in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this expert in the law, who would be called a lawyer back in those times, but not the type of lawyer that we think of today, this guy was an expert in God's law, the Old Testament law. And this expert in the law comes up to Jesus and he asks him a question there in verse 25, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now that's a good question. In fact, that's a great question question. I mean, really stop and think about what he's asking here. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I get to heaven? How can I know for sure that when I die, that I will be in heaven? Could it be a greater question than that? I mean, that's an incredibly important question. There's never been a more important question than that one. I wished everyone that I encountered would come up to me and ask me that question. Derek, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let me ask you before we move on. Do you know the answer to that question? How would you answer that question? Now, before we think about Jesus' answer, and he's going to give it here in just a moment, I want you to notice that this man assumes that there's something he can or must do to inherit eternal life. And this is the way most people in the world think. They think that there's something they must do or that there's something that they must stop doing to earn God's approval, to inherit 
eternal life. Keep that in mind as this scene that we're going to look at unfolds. Now I want you to notice something else that's very interesting here in the text. Notice that Jesus doesn't answer the man's question. You're going to see that. If you haven't read the story, you're going to see that here in the text. Well, why not? Why doesn't Jesus just answer his question? Because even though the expert in the law asked a good question, he asked that good question with a bad motive. Look back in verse 25 again, and I've got a word underlined for you. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Luke tells us that the motive for this guy asking this question was simply just to test Jesus. He really wasn't seeking the answer. He really didn't want to know the answer. He just wanted to trap Jesus in front of all the people who were gathered around there at this time. Now let me say this. Whenever somebody would come up to Jesus with an honest question, Jesus would give them an honest answer. But whenever someone would come up to Jesus with a dishonest question, he would turn the tables back on them by asking them a question to expose the sin that was in their heart. That's what he does here. Jesus takes this expert in the law's question and puts it back on him. He takes this expert in the law back to the very law that he was supposed to be an expert in. Look in verse 26. What is written in the law? He, talking about Jesus, replied. How do you read it? Now this expert in the law is about to learn a hard lesson. And that lesson is this. You don't test Jesus. Jesus tests you. So Jesus looks this expert in the law, looks at him right in the eyes, points him back to the law, and asks him how he reads it. Well, how do you see it? What's written in the law? How do you read it? How do you interpret the law? Now, if you just paused right here for just a moment, in reality, this Expert in the law has really just kind of been lobbed a softball question by Jesus. I mean, every Jewish kid had this answer memorized by the time that they were five years old. So when Jesus asks him, how do you read it? Immediately, this expert in the law knows the answer. He answers Jesus's question by accurately quoting Scripture. Verse 27. He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It's a pretty good answer. I mean, Jesus even affirms the man's answer in the very next verse. Look in verse 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Jesus confirms that this expert in the law's answer is spot on. He's given a perfect answer to Jesus' question. And I'm sure 
that after he says that and says it so quickly, I'm sure that there is a satisfied, smug smile on his face, knowing that he had given Jesus the right answer. But his smile doesn't last very long. Now comes the twist. Now comes the words that this expert in the law wasn't ready for. Jesus goes right past what this guy knows in his head to expose this guy's sin in his heart. Look in verse 28. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now, folks, that's a big do. Do you see what he's saying here? Two things. Number one, if you like to fill in blanks, you can. Love God supremely. In other words, make God the highest passion in your heart. The one you think about first, the one you think about the most, the undisputed champion of your affections. You should care more about pleasing Him than anything or anyone else in your life. When your mind is idle, it should naturally turn to delight in God. You are to love God supremely and love everybody else as much as you love yourself. Care about others' needs as much as you care about your own. Rejoice in their happiness. Worry about their futures. Weep about their sorrows just as much you do your own. Now, when it comes to doing both of those things that you see right there on the screen in front of you, how many of you want to raise your hand and say, hey, man, that's my weekend, Derek, right there. I did that. How many of you want to say that? But here's what Jesus is saying by saying those two things back to this expert in the law. Obey God's commandments perfectly, and you'll have eternal life. Perfect obedience to love God and to love your neighbors is one way to gain eternal life. Now, folks, here's the dilemma. We can't perfectly fulfill God's law. We've not done it. We can't do it. If perfect obedience to the law of God can earn us eternal life, then all of us who are in this room and who are watching online are going to die guilty. That's the twist. If we have to do something in order to inherit eternal life, then we are all doomed to hell. This lawyer knows in his head what the correct answer is, but this lawyer can't live with his life what the correct answer is. And this exchange between Jesus and this lawyer illustrates the Bible's teaching that the law wasn't given to save us. The law was given to show us our sin and our need to be saved. The law was given to expose our sin and lead us to a Savior. And that is why Jesus came to die for us. Now I believe, even though the text doesn't tell us this, that this lawyer felt guilty in that very moment. When Jesus told him that he had answered correctly and that he needed to do it, he immediately began searching for an excuse. He saw that perfectly loving God and perfectly loving his neighbor was impossible. He was guilty and he knew it. 
That's why he replies the way he does in verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Instead of being justified by throwing himself upon the mercy of God, the text tells us he tries to justify himself by trying to wiggle himself out of this predicament that he found himself in. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, Jesus. When it comes to this love thing, how far does my love have to extend? Define what you mean by neighbor. Just who is my neighbor that I'm supposed to love? Do you see what he's doing here? He's looking for a loophole. He's feeling the squeeze, so he tries to limit the scope a little bit so he can meet it. What he wants to know is not who is my neighbor, but who is not my neighbor. In other words, how far do I have to go to show love and care to somebody else. Now watch this. Basically what he's doing is trying to separate people into two categories. Neighbors to love and non-neighbors not to love. Now convicted of his sin, this expert in the law tries to push it back on Jesus and say, okay Jesus, do you say I should love my neighbor? Then tell me, who is my neighbor? And as a good religious Jew, this expert in the law expected Jesus to give him a list of neighbors that included all the good people. People just like him. People that look like him. People that talk like him. People that acted like him. People that went to church like him. People who were just like him. He assumed that Jesus would say, well, your neighbors are people who are just like you. But Jesus' answer couldn't have been further from the truth. Which leads Jesus to tell one of his greatest stories with one of his greatest lessons. And what Jesus does from this point on is he tells this man a story. And in this story, we get an amazing image of what it truly means to act in radical love. It's... In this story that we'll learn about having compassion and loving our neighbor. In this story, you'll see what it means to truly love your neighbor. Look in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So this story takes place on what is called the Jericho Road. The Jericho Road was a stretch of road that headed downward from Jerusalem to Jericho. It wasn't a road like our roads today. There were no exits. There were no rest stops. There were no restaurants. There were no hotels. It was a very rough, extremely dangerous, 17-mile winding road that was bordered by steep cliffs on one side and hills on the other side. It was a dark, narrow, rocky road. Not exactly the place you want to be on a dark Friday night. It was danger zone. So dangerous that this road actually became known as the way of the blood. 
It was an ideal place for robbers to hide. Everywhere you turn, there could be someone just waiting to pounce on you. And in fact, that's what happens to this guy. Look in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So traveling along this road was a man. He starts out, you see it there, as he starts out, everything's fine. But then the Bible says he, and I bring up verse 30 again with some words underlined. Then he fell into the hands of robbers. Get the picture now. Here's this guy just minding his own business, just traveling along when all of a sudden, boom, out of nowhere, robbers jump on him, strip him of his clothes, beat him. We assume they rob him and then leave him half dead, just lying there by the road. Now let's bring it home for just a moment. This is the perfect picture of many people out in our community, out in your community. People who are just going along in life and then all of a sudden, boom, something happens in their life that leaves them wounded, bleeding, and hurting. Some people find themselves wounded domestically. They're just going along in life and then, boom, they find themselves in the middle of a divorce. Some people find themselves wounded economically. They're just going along in life and then, boom, they find themselves without a job. Some people find themselves wounded emotionally. They're going along in life and then boom, they find themselves having to bury a spouse or having to bury a child. There are many people who are simply going through life and then boom, in an instant, their lives are suddenly turned upside down. So you got the picture now. Here's this man, he's bleeding, he's naked, he's hurting all over, feeling as if he's going to die. There's a lot we don't know about this man, but we do know here is a man that has a need. He needs someone to have compassion on him, to show him love, and to help him with his need. Now I think by this time in the story, Jesus has everybody who's listening, he has their attention, because this is something that everybody can identify with. Back then and here today. The people listening to Jesus are sitting on the edge of their seats as Jesus continues with his story. Look in verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So a priest sees the man on the side of the road, beaten and left for dead. Now, we don't know how long the man lay there by the side of the road, but the Bible says that when the priest saw him, he, in verse 31, passed by on the other side. So the priest, he'd been at the temple, Jerusalem. He's got on his royal robes. He's on his way down this road, heading back to Jericho. Maybe he just finished preaching a message on loving God. Maybe just preached a message on loving your neighbor. Maybe just preached a message on how to care for other people. And he comes along and he sees this guy by the side of the road who is hurting and in need. It's just him and this man. And you can almost hear the priest as he says, poor guy. And you talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I really hope somebody comes along this road and helps this guy out. I can't do it. 
I mean, after all, I'm a preacher, not a paramedic. But that gives me a good idea. I feel the Holy Spirit telling me that we need to start a ministry for people who are hurting. And the Bible says the priest just passes by on the other side. He did nothing to help this man who was hurting. Now this is kind of funny because this is actually a very narrow road. So in other words, this priest had to practically step over the man to avoid him. Time passes. Another guy comes down the road. This time it's a Levite. Look in verse 32. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So being a Levite, he too had probably just been at the temple on his way back to Jericho. And he comes along and sees this man who's hurting and in need. And you can almost hear this guy kind of say, wow, this guy's in bad shape. But he should have known better than to be here. He brought this upon himself. I sure hope somebody comes along this road and helps him out. Besides, the preacher went long again. And I don't want to have to wait in line for a table at Pizza Ranch. But I'll tell you what I will do. I'll make sure I put this on Facebook. So the other people will pray for this guy. And the Bible says that this guy too passed by on the other side of the road. Doing nothing to help this guy who was hurting Now, the language of the text gives us the sense that at least the Levite actually went up close to see the guy. But he still passed by on the other side. Jesus made the point in his story. The very ones who were responsible in the worship of God. And who were to live a lifestyle that was to be like God were the ones in this instance who were being so unlike God. The two people who you would have thought for sure would have stopped to help this hurting man would have been the two that had just come from worshiping God. Look, folks, the problem is not what the priest and the Levite did do. The problem is what the priest and the Levite did not do. They didn't want to help the person that they saw who was hurting. They could talk the talk, but they couldn't walk the walk. And Jesus was saying to this expert in the law, that the very people that he looked up to, those that he thought were so right all of the time, those that he thought were so religious didn't obey the very law that he had just defined. They didn't love their neighbor. Look, church, being a follower of Jesus is not about how religious we can be. Being a follower of Jesus has everything to do with following the example of Jesus in expressing radical love to hurting people. In fact, let me bring a verse out to you. James chapter 4 verse 17 says, If you know the right thing to do and you do not do it, that for you is evil. Jesus is telling us by what the priest and the Levite did not do, they were no better off than what the robbers did do. You see, the robbers 
took something from the man. And the priest and the Levite kept something from the man. The priest and the Levite were okay in going to church. They just didn't want to be the church. Now look, coming to church, coming to worship is fine and dandy. But when we think that's all that God expects of us, we miss it completely. When we think that we can worship God on Sunday and then ignore a hurting person on Monday, that is not the ministry that Jesus came to do. Jesus even referred to this in Matthew chapter 23 when He said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Look, they tithe their spice rack. That's some pretty serious stuff. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. The weightiest part of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so if I want to evaluate my walk with Jesus, here's how I do it. How much of my time and resources is poured out for others? Now look, at this point in the story, and I'm almost done. Hang with me about another hour. (laughs) They think I'm kidding. I said that to my wife. At this point in the story, the people are okay with it. But no one expected Jesus to finish the story the way he did. Here's where Jesus doesn't throw them a softball. Here's where Jesus throws them a curveball. Here's where the story takes a turn. Look how verse 33 begins. But a Samaritan... Now, everyone listening to this story was expecting this third man to be an Israelite. But Jesus doesn't do that. He brings up a Samaritan. And the minute that Jesus brings up a Samaritan, you can hear the (gasps) gasps all through the crowd. Because if if you're familiar with your Bible at all, you know the Samaritans were the sworn enemies of the Jews. To say that there was animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans would be the understatement of the year. The Jews hated them. In fact, for a Jewish person to call another Jewish person a Samaritan, that was the biggest insult that you could ever make. It's hard for us to fully understand how much the Jews really hated them. We talk about the Good Samaritan today. We even name hospitals after them today. But the Jews would not have named an outhouse after a Samaritan. To the Jew, the only Good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan. Let me add this. Jews would not only not speak to a Samaritan, they wouldn't speak of a Samaritan. That's why at the end of the story, and you'll see it later too, when Jesus asked the expert in the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law answers, the one who had mercy on him. He still couldn't bring himself to say the word Samaritan. But Jesus not only brings up a Samaritan, he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. 
The last words of verse 33 set the Samaritan apart from the priest and the Levite. Look in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. The Samaritan not only sees the man, but he is moved with compassion for the man. He not only saw the man with his eyes, he saw the man with his heart. And the Samaritan's heart is so moved with compassion for the hurting man. Look what he does in verses 33 or 34 and 35. He went to him, the man who was hurting, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So he binds up his wounds. He pours oil and wine on them. He puts them in his car, takes him to a hotel, and opens up an account with the hotel manager and says, whatever it takes, however long it takes to get this man back on his feet, put it on my account. All that for a man he'd never met, who was probably a Jew, and for all that he knew, would not have done the same thing for him. This Samaritan could have used a number of excuses as to why he couldn't stop and help, but instead the Samaritan reaches out in mercy. Look church, if I have the opportunity to act, then that means that I have the responsibility to act. When you look in verses 34 and 35 again, that is love. That is compassion. That is being the church. This man probably tore his own clothes to make bandages. He used his own supplies as medicine. He used his own donkey as transportation. And he paid his own money to put the hurting guy up. He takes on this guy's burden as his own. Look, you may have to go out of your way. You may have to get dirty. It may not be convenient. It might even cost you something. But that's what it means to have a heart like Jesus. This is the core of what it means to follow Jesus. The question that we should always be asking is not what will happen to me if I do help them. But what will happen to them if I don't help them. Jesus told this story to teach a lesson to the crowd on that day. And I think to teach a lesson to the crowd on this day. Not everyone understands the real meaning of the story. But Jesus actually told his story to show the expert in the law and to show everyone else that he had asked the wrong question. The question is not, who is my neighbor? The question to be asking is, am I a good neighbor? Now we understand the meaning of the story. You see, a neighbor is not just the person who lives around you. A neighbor is someone who has a need. And if a person has a need that you can meet and you should meet, then that person is your neighbor. My neighbor is anyone in need who crosses my path or whose path I cross, whose need I am able to meet.
And here's where Jesus drives the knife all the way home in verses 36 and 37. Look with me there. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Notice in the story, it's not so much about the man in need. It's about those who had a chance to help the man in need, but didn't. And the one who did what he could. Notice Jesus' words again as he closes out. Go and do. Mercy demands that we do something. Mercy is not simply a sentimental feeling for those who hurt. It's backstraining, time-consuming, and cost-involving as we minister to other people. Jesus made it clear that you may know the right words to say. You may know the right things to do. But when it comes down to it, if you're faced with someone who is hurting and in need, Jesus is asking you, He's asking me, are you going to love this person the way that I love you? You see, this is where Jesus takes the expert's question and turns it on its head. If you remember, the, the, this question started with the expert in the law asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. But if you know anything about the life and teaching of Jesus, you know the whole point of Jesus coming was that we couldn't save ourselves. He came to save us. Which is why Jesus puts an interesting twist into the story. You see, when I read this, I ask the question. Now you may be asking the question. Why have a Samaritan be the hero of the story? Why not tell the story in such a way where the expert in the law can identify with the person who offered the help? Why not say, the priest came by, then the Levite, then a really good loving Jew came by. Be like the Jew. But Jesus used a character who couldn't have been more different from the guy asking the question. And I think I know why. Don't miss this last statement that you'll see on the screen. What if the person I am supposed, most supposed to identify with in this story is not the priest or the Levite or the Good Samaritan? What if instead I am primarily like the guy bleeding on the side of the road? And what if someone who had every reason to hate me and be my enemy, someone very unlike me, had chosen to put himself into danger to help me? What if the really good Samaritan is Jesus, who put himself into the path of danger and took upon himself the suffering that we had caused ourselves? And poured out his own resources to save us. Jesus is asking this man. What if you were bleeding to death on the side of the road. And your only hope was an act of free grace from an enemy. Who didn't owe you anything. 
after you had been rescued like that, what would your life look like? You see, if we understand Jesus' life, we're the ones saved by radical grace, by a God who had every right to regard himself our enemy. We're not only recipients of the amazing grace of God, but we're also recipients of the magnificent mercy of God. We show mercy because we've been shown mercy. The man on the road didn't deserve help, but the man on the road sure needed help. And by definition, the only people who receive mercy are those who don't deserve mercy. If you deserve it, it's not mercy. Therefore, the basis of this text is not how you want others to treat you, but how God has already treated you. And when you and I experience the loving grace of the good Samaritan toward us, we can't help but become extenders of that same loving grace and mercy toward other people. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth. Father, we thank you because we know where all of us would be headed were it not for your grace and your mercy toward us. By sending Jesus to come and die for our sin. And God, those of us who have received your grace and your mercy are under obligation to extend that same grace and mercy to other people. All around us are people that are hurting and in need. God, may we not step over them. May we not walk around them. May we not overlook them. But may we take what you have blessed us with and in turn be a blessing to them. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.